Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Um, ben was just, oh, we can't record this, I'm recording on my phone today, and he's reminding me because I would have forgotten, so thanks Ben. Um, so as I said before, it's great to have you with us, I think dedication services are up there as some of my favourite services, I think the Nativity service, which is happening on 17th December, is my actual favourite service of the year, but this is definitely up there, um, not only because we get to show how much we value children as gifts from God, which we do, but also because this service helps to reinforce that church isn't just like a family, it actually is a family. And I know that's kind of a soppy cliche, but the Bible speaks over and over again about how church is God's family, that we are brought into relationship with God, he is our father, and therefore if we are children of God, then we are also siblings, like it or not. Now, Jax and I have two amazing girls, Olivia is five, Ariana is two, um, they are amazing, but they are just completely different, they couldn't really be more different, they look completely different, um, they're going to be different heights, the little one's already catching up to the big one, which is causing a few issues, um, they, uh, uh, well, one of them is a kind of like this huge introvert, and one of them is a massive extrovert, so one of them deals with kind of anything hard going on by like falling on the floor, floods of tears, Another one deals with that by throwing stuff and shouting. And so we're trying to work out how do we parent these two very, very different girls. And because they are so different, one of the things that we constantly think about is how do we help them slash how do we make them love one another? How do we make sure that they get on? Um, how do we make sure that they become friends and stay friends throughout kind of like teenage years and into adulthood? And so whenever I find sisters who are really tight, really get on. I'm always thinking, what did your parents do? How did this happen? Now, I know it's not all down to the parents, but some of it must be right. So we're kind of thinking, what do we need to do to help our children get on? How do we help them learn one uh, how, how do we help them learn to love one another? And you know what? I think that's probably what God wants too. Don't you think that as he looks down on his amazing creation, all the people that he made, don't you think that he wants to, them to get on too? Don't you think he looks down at the division that is around and the hatred and the violence and all the stuff that has kind of been in the news seemingly for years now, just keeps on going on and on? Don't you think that God wants to do something about that? Don't you think he wants to help people who are different to one another, maybe especially people who are very different to one another, love one another, forgive one another, get on, live at peace? I would argue that maybe this is actually one of the biggest things that Jesus came to earth to do is to bring this unity between God's children. He didn't just come to reconcile us to his father through him, although he did. He also came to reconcile us to one another. Um, In the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul writes that Jesus didn't come just to do that. He says, Jesus is our peace. He says, he has made us one by destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility that exists between us. So not just about us and God, but us and our brothers and sisters. What Paul is talking about there is unity. Jesus came to bring unity. And so whenever we see the spirit of Jesus at work in a community, we should expect to experience unity. We should expect to find a community that is able to unite people who are very different to one another into one big family. That helps brothers and sisters love one another. And that is actually just what we find the spirit doing all the way through the book of Acts, which is a book that we have been looking at as a church this term. 
We read in the book of Acts that as soon as the church began, there was a lot of, shall we say, resistance to this early church. And actually that resistance got pretty violent pretty quickly. And so quite early on, Stephen, one of the leaders of the early church, is killed by this religious mob, stoned him to death. Violence breaks out, persecution breaks out, and so the church just kind of scatters all over the place. And it says in chapter 11 that some of those who have been scattered travelled as far as Antioch. Antioch is about 500 miles away from Jerusalem. Um, in modern-day Syria. And Antioch, at that point, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was huge, about 500,000 people. It's about ten times bigger than Jerusalem in terms of population, but it was nowhere near ten times bigger in terms of landmass. And so historians estimate that the population density of Antioch was about 75,000 people per square mile. To put that into context, Greater London is about 12,000 people per square mile. So this is a crowded, bustling, packed-in city. And not only that, it was one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world at that time. It was built on this intersection between different trade routes. So you went down into Africa, and you went up into Europe and over into Asia. And you have people from all of those different places come to live here, live alongside one another, with all their different backgrounds and religions and cultures kind of rubbing up against one another. And this combination of density and diversity made it a volatile place to live. The historian Rodney Stark describes Antioch as a city filled with hatred and fear, rooted in intense ethnic antagonism and exacerbated by a constant stream of strangers. A city so lacking in stable networks of attachment that petty incidents could prompt mob violence. And he thought London had its problems. Anyway, at some point in Antioch's history, they thought the best way to keep the peace was by literally keeping people apart. And so within the city itself, these huge walls were built, kind of, these walls were built kind of basically keeping ethnic neighbourhoods from one another. They're about 18 different quarters. And it's in that city that a group of Jesus followers come. And they turn up and they start telling people about him and about the life that is available in him. And they don't just keep the good news to the Jews. Obviously, all the first Christians were pretty much all Jewish. When they come to Antioch, they start talking to the Greeks as well. And we're told in verse 21 that the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, this is the first time for the church um, that a community is being started by and for non-Jews. So the leader of the church back in Jerusalem, they send Barnabas to go and check it out. Uh, Barnabas is a Jew, he's also uh, from Greek descent. And when Barnabas arrived and he saw what the grace of God has done, says he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And Barnabas stays there with this new community, uh, teaching them about Jesus. And then he goes and gets his friend Saul and he brings him back to Antioch and they spend a year there strengthening the church, teaching the, ter- the church and great numbers of people found faith. And the passage ends with this kind of throwaway line. It says, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And you think, okay, sure, like, that's what we're called. We're called Christians. But actually, this is a huge deal. Until that point, a person's religious identity was completely wrapped up in their ethnic or national identity. They're effectively one and the same thing. Or to put it another way, a person's religion was just the result or the outworking of their culture. If you were born here, then you worship this. That's kind of the way it went. Which, if you think about it, is pretty much how a lot of people still think about religion. You know, you hear the argument that says, you're just a Christian because you were born in England, or you're just a Muslim because you're from Afghanistan, or you're just um, a, a Sikh because you're from India. It kind of follows that you were born there, so you worship that. That's the way the argument goes. And that's kind of the way a lot of people think now, and that's the way everyone thought back then. 
So when the world first sees the early Christians who were all Jewish, worshipping a Jewish Messiah, no problem. That's just kind of par for the course. That's what happens. The Ephesians worship their God. The Romans worship their God. The Greeks worship their God. These Jews are just worshipping their God. No big deal. But then in Antioch, something strange happened. For the first time in history, there's an experience of God that was so profound that it started bringing people together across cultural and national uh, barriers. Literally crossing walls to invite people into one community. People from different ethnic groups were leaving their culture behind, their cultural religions behind, and they're beginning to worship God together. And they were becoming friends in the process, and actually not just friends, but this new community, this new family. So for the first time in the world, uh, first time the world is forced to come up with a new name for what this is. It can't just be a Jewish religion anymore, because it's not just Jews who are worshipping this Jesus. It's also Greeks and Romans and Egyptians and everyone, it seems, in Antioch. So they had to come up with a new name. And if you fast forward two chapters and six years, the church in Antioch has become way more established. In Acts 13, I list the leaders of the church. So you've got Barnabas, who was a Greek Jew from Cyprus. You've got Simeon, whose Latin name literally means black, which suggests he's one of the many black Africans around at the time. You've got Lucius, who was probably a Roman Gentile. Manian, who was a Palestinian aristocrat, who grew up with King Herod, probably as a foster brother. And then you've got Saul, a Jewish Pharisee and Roman citizen. So from these five people, they represent three different continents and four different ethnic groups. If you think that's the leadership of the church, you can kind of guess how diverse the congregation was itself. So in this middle of a city filled with hatred and fear, rooted in intense ethnic antagonism, you have this new kind of community made up of people from loads of different backgrounds, different classes, different religious backgrounds... People who previously would have been separated by literal walls now coming together as one. People who would have been one another's competition, even one another's enemies, are now one another's family. And this community was so attractive to people that it just grew and grew. And Antioch is now known as the cradle of Christianity. This is where everything kind of exploded. And Tim Keller, who is a church leader in New York City, so knows a thing or two about trying to build kind of a united community in the midst of diversity. He argues it wasn't just that this multi-ethnic boundary crossing one body from many new family was the result of the good news of Jesus. It wasn't just that the good news was so compelling that it managed to bring people together. He says that this type of new community was probably the very reason that the gospel was believed in the first place. It was part of the communication of the gospel. It was the experience of a diverse community coming together, loving one another, that made people stop and think, well, maybe there must be something to this. But shouldn't really be surprising to us, should it? After all, remember the words of Jesus to his disciples. He said, everyone will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Now, when we think about Jesus' disciples, it's easy to get the wrong impression, I think. It's easy to think of them as kind of a Renaissance-era painting, like Da Vinci's Last Supper. That's how we kind of think about them. Well, this next slide is a modern-day rendition of The Last Supper by the Scottish artist Peter Howson. It's not quite as beautiful or serene, is it? In a weird kind of grotesque way, I think it speaks more to the disciples as they really were than to the image we have kind of from stained-glass windows. So amongst Jesus' inner 12, the guys who was training up to lead this new community, you have Peter. 
a fisherman who was more than a little impulsive, the kind of guy who acted first and thought later, the kind of guy that was so secure in his own opinion that he was willing to argue over and over with Jesus, the Son of God. I mean, this guy knew his own mind. Then there's Simon the Zealot. And that doesn't mean that he was a guy with a lot of get up and go. The Zealots were actually a community of uh, revolutionary fighters who were getting to ready to overthrow the Romans with force. It said that they carried around with them at all times razor-sharp blades, ready to join the uprising whenever it started. And then into that mix, Jesus throws Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. Matthew is someone who works for the Roman government. He is someone who extorts money out of his fellow Jews on behalf of the government to make himself rich. Can you imagine how Simon and Matthew reacted when Jesus chose both of them to come into this new community? I mean, one of them worked for the Romans, one of them wanted to kill the Romans. Well, how about Peter and Matthew? Estimates suggest that at that time, um, there was huge taxation upon uh, the Jewish population. Between 50% and 90% of their earnings would be taxed, and fishermen were the most taxed of all the people in society. So you can imagine Peter and Simon going up to Jesus and saying, hey, we think you're great, we really want in on this, but this guy? Really, Jesus, you're going to have to choose. It's going to be us or it's going to be them. And you know what Jesus did? He did choose. He chose all of them. He chose to start this community with these really different types of people. Because he was trying to teach them right from the beginning that community wasn't about having the same type of background, same occupation, same political views or anything else. It wasn't even actually about the kind of your character or your gifting. It was firstly about your desire to come into relationship with the Father through Jesus, but then also your willingness to come into relationship with the other people in the family. You just can't have one without the other. To be part of Jesus' community, to be part of God's family, means learning not just how to live alongside and tolerate one another. I mean, that's kind of the weakest part. It means learning to love one another in the same way that Jesus loves us with his his whole life. This is how the Apostle Paul put it to the church in Ephesus, another church made up of people from very different backgrounds. He said, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice he doesn't tell us to make the unity. That's God's work. That's what God did through Jesus. Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between us. He made the unity, but we are called to keep it. Paul is basically here reminding us that we are family and we need to act like it. He's calling us to do all we can to keep this unity, something that he says takes humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. In Harper Lee's novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, the character of Jem Finch says... You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And they're still kin to you, no matter whether you acknowledge them or not. And it makes you look right silly when you don't. And he's right, only for Paul, that doesn't quite go far enough. It's not just that we look silly when we fail to acknowledge, when we fail to embrace uh, members of our family. It's that when we do that, we're not actually living in a way that is worthy of the good news that we have received. It's obviously not just along racial lines that society experiences divisions and disunity. We live in a society that divided down so many different lines, lines of gender, of politics, wealth, class, physical disability, sexuality, age, even relationship status. Divisions everywhere. And the message of the Bible is that all of those divisions have been broken down. 
As Paul put it to the Galatians, he said, In Christ Jesus we are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Which doesn't mean that in Christ Jesus there are no differences. Paul isn't saying that we are all the same, but he is saying that we are no longer divided by those differences because we are now all one. And so communities that are full of the spirit of Jesus should experience something of this countercultural unity. Which is in fact what we do find throughout the church's history when we see kind of major moves of the Holy Spirit. One famous story comes uh, from the Azusa Street Revival. So one of the key figures was this guy called William Joseph Seymour. He was born in 1870 to former slaves in Louisiana, a state in America that suffered and inflicted some of the most, uh, the worst racial violence in America's history. And in 1895, he became a Christian and began to study theology, hoping to become a pastor. And during his studies, he contracted smallpox, which left him blind in one eye. It took him a long time to recover, but recovery did. He finished his studies, and then he became a pastor in Los Angeles in 1906. And within just two weeks of arriving in L.A., he was effectively fired. He was asked to leave the church. Because people just weren't comfortable with what he was teaching about how the Holy Spirit is available to everyone. Not just to a certain type of people in a certain place, but open to all. So he moved in with this small community, mainly of a large, uh, poor black Christians, and they prayed. And they prayed. And over the next few months, more and more people came longing to have this experience of God and of unity. And in April, God answered their prayer in a dramatic way, pouring out his spirit upon them. And so many people heard about what was coming, came to see and experience for themselves that the house they were meeting in, the porch, almost collapsed under the weight. So they had to find another building and they found this disused church in Azusa Street. And so then on, every day, 500 people met to worship and pray together. And this is considered the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. And those daily meetings lasted three years. Thousands and thousands of people reported having an amazing experience of God because of them. During that time, there were countless reported healings and miracles. But the most radical thing about that community was its unity. In contrast to the culture it was in, in contrast to most of the churches that were around, Azusa Street was incredibly diverse. Men and women, black and white, from different social classes, they worshipped together, they prayed together, they led together, they experienced God together, they uh, extended hospitality to one another. This was so radically different to what was happening everywhere else that many church leaders kind of distanced distanced themselves from it. Even Charles Parham, who was a white pastor who had been a mentor for Seymour, he denounced it. He kind of stepped back. His way of viewing the world had been so formed by the segregated and patriarchal culture that he was in, he couldn't even see that this could possibly be a move of God. Which has sadly been true of much of the church's history. Instead of following the example of Jesus and the early church and the urging of Paul to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit... It seems like many churches at best just kind of ignore this really central part of the the, the Bible and at worst actively actively stand and preach against it. I think the story of Azusa Street is so much closer to the way God intends his church to be. You have a visually impaired preacher, a poor praying community full of the spirit, drawing people together into one family irrespective of gender, race, class or any other dividing factor. I mean that sounds like the family of God to me. And if you read these stories of revivals, and so many of them, you see social barriers being broken down in every one. The historian Alex Ryrie says that what was so powerful about the Pentecostal movement 
was a potent idea that the Spirit would empower every believer, regardless of nationality, age, sex or education. And preaching this message sparked revivals in Australia, Estonia, Sweden, on and on, all over the place, just like it happened in Antioch. So where does that leave us? If we do want to build this type of community here in a city as diverse as London, if we do want to help bring people who are very different to one another into relationship, into being one big family where everyone is loved and valued and celebrated, how do we do that? How do we get brothers and sisters to get along and to love one another? Well, there are obviously loads of things that we can and should be doing. There are loads of conversations I have about this. But let me just give you three before I finish. Quite simple, you should remember this. We need to eat, pray, love. Not like the book. I'm going to explain it. Firstly, let's be a family that eats together. Jax and I try and have dinner with our girls and with our two housemates as much as possible. Obviously, because of work uh, commitments for all four of the adults in the house, that is not always possible, but we do it as much as we can. And on Saturdays, we have a tradition of kind of family brunch where we do pancakes and we invite loads of people around. And we do that because, well, all the research shows that families that eat together build stronger relationships, and that's a good thing. We want strong relationships. We want to create these moments in our week where we're not doing anything apart from being with one another. So there's no kind of agenda, there's no work, hopefully there's no phones, I remember to leave it out of the room. It's just us being with one another, talking. And the goal is to move past talking about kind of the facts of our day, what happened, what we did, to talking about us how we felt about what we did, how we felt about what happened to us, why we reacted the way that we did, the things that we are hoping for and dreaming for, the things that we are fearful of. And as any parent will tell you, doing that with kids, often, especially at the end of the day when they are tired, it's like drawing blood from a stone. Often it's like, Olivia, what did you do at school today? I can't remember. (laughs) Olivia, did anything happen today that made you especially happy or sad? I can't remember. But every now and again, you get those moments when they open up, and it's just amazing. And one of the ways uh, we do this at our brunch is we have a tradition of everyone has to say one thing, at least one thing in the week, that they are thankful for. And so it's a kind of a way of helping our children to think about engaging with some kind of emotion about what's going on and their hopes and their dreams. And we always do this with ever uh, who comes from pancakes. So if you ever get invited to pancakes, be prepared. You will be asked to do this. And yesterday we had some of Jack's family with us, so there was nine of us around the table, and so we started off. It's very easy when you've got kids there, because you aim it at them and then you can just work it around, start with the kids. And it was amazing. Like We had these like, nine different things, people saying that they were thankful for, and it just kind of raised the level of our conversation, even if it was just for that moment. So we think that eating together should be a normal part of life here at Christchurch. It's why we encourage all of our midweek connect groups to eat together. It's why several times a term we do what we're going to do today and have a bring and share lunch. Because we think eating together, encouraging people to gather around one another's tables, extending hospitality, maybe across social barriers, inviting people in, helps to break down those barriers and build unity as we just give space to really finding out about one another. As we learn to see the world through one another's eyes, we find out about one another's stories and experiences. So let's be a church that eats and talks lots. And let's be a church that prays for one another. You know, it's so easy to miss the Bible's constant emphasis on community and living as family that we can even misapply really well-known passages of the Bible. Take, for example, the Lord's Prayer. Hands down, this is the most famous prayer in the world, prayed by billions every week. 
The disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus teaches how to pray. And Jesus says, pray like this. When you pray, pray, our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's my Anglican upbringing from childhood. And Jesus, uh, do you notice anything about the pronouns in all of that? I mean, we often pray this, don't we? My Father... Give me my daily bread. Forgive me my sin. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. So obviously there's nothing wrong with that. Those are good things to pray. But that's not what Jesus says. The disciples say, teach us how to pray. And he says, pray for community. Pray for family. If you really want to pray like Jesus, you have to be thinking more than just yourself. For Jesus, prayer is talking to God about the needs of the family. Which means that if we want to pray like Jesus, we actually need to know what's going on in family life. We need to know how our brothers and sisters are doing. Where are they in need? What are they suffering with? Where are they being tempted? What hardships are they going through? Because all of those things will be very different for each one of us. We all experience this city in very different ways. Which takes us back to the getting to know one another thing over a meal. Because the only way to do that stuff is to create a space where people feel safe enough, where they can be vulnerable because they know that they are loved, that they are willing to share. So let's eat together, talk together, and pray for one another. And let's really love one another. I mean, real love. Like, let's do the hard work of valuing one another before ourselves, of putting one another's needs before our own, of forgiving one another, of bearing with one another, of helping to carry one another's burdens. I don't know if you've ever come across um, Mary Stevenson's famous poem, Footprints. Like, loads of Christians are taught this very, very young. Um, and it, she kind of looks back at her life with Jesus, and she sees these kind of two sets of footprints in the sand. And every now and again, it's just one footprint in the sand. She gets to the end of her life and says, Jesus, you said you were always going to be with me, but as I look around, there are parts where you weren't. And actually, those parts were the hardest part of my life. What's going on? And kind of the punchline of this is at that moment, Jesus was carrying her through her life. And that is beautiful and it's moving and I'm sure really helpful to a lot of people. But again, it's such an individualistic way of looking at our faith in God. That we are on our own. Jesus is carrying us. But as Tim Otto, an American pastor and author, points out, there is already a story in the Bible about footprints in the sand. The Exodus. When the people of Israel leave Egypt, they cross a desert to the promised land. You have thousands of footprints in the sand, but there's nowhere near as many footprints as there were people. And why is that? Because the young, the sick, and the elderly were being carried by one another. And he, unlike Stevenson's individual walk with Jesus, he says the biblical vision of walking with God is walking in community. To have your burdens carried, Jesus doesn't kind of magically do this. He does it through the community around us. We are supposed to be supporting one another, carrying one another. And when we share meals together, when we really get to talking to one another, when we know one another's stories and experiences and struggles, when we bring those to God in prayer, I have no doubt that God will start whispering to us and nudging us and saying, hey, do you not think maybe you could do something about that? And that's what we want to do here. We want to carry one another's burdens because it is both our privilege and also our responsibility as brothers and sisters, as kin to one another, to help carry one another's burdens. Maybe I have the band back, please. 
So I know we've kind of barely scratched the surface of this huge topic, and we want to be learning more about this. We know that there are many ways and that we are not doing this well, and we want to do it better. And we want this to be a community full of the spirit of Jesus that is intentional about crossing the walls that exist all around us, inviting people into a family where all are loved, celebrated, and valued. And we're going to worship now, which is just a great way to reflect on what we've been talking about, and maybe to ask God if there are any next steps for us to take. Maybe that's just deciding to have people over for dinner. And when you do, trying to steer the conversation on from just facts about stuff to feelings, how people kind of really deal with stuff. Maybe it's a commitment to start praying for people more. To actually pray our Father, to know what's going on and pray for the community. Maybe today at lunch is deciding to sit on a table where you don't know everyone in order to kind of bring people together. Maybe you are only here for the dedications and you've just completely sceptical of all this faith stuff and you've sat very politely through my talk. Well, firstly, thank you for that. Thank you for coming and supporting your friends and family. I know it means a lot to them. Um, and secondly, just to say that you are just really welcome here, whatever you think about all of this. Um, I hope that it's given you something to think about. I hope this whole morning will. But even if it hasn't, you can have a great lunch and spend the rest of the day with family and friends. So it's a win for you. So thank you for coming. And also just to mention, if you're into carols at all, carol service would be a great place. Um, but yeah, so why don't we stand? Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.